Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. We've gone from smartphones to smart cars to smart watches. But now, more and more household items are being fitted with computers and the technology to communicate. But with this exciting advance come new challenges, challenges of privacy and security. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we'll be discussing the Internet of Things, and our guests are John Heitman and Jameson Dempsey. John, Jameson, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Why don't we start with the basics. What is the Internet of Things? Jameson. The Internet of Things is essentially an ecosystem of objects connected to the internet. Uh, it's differentiated from the quote-unquote internet of people. So uh, for the last 20 years, uh, all data that was put into the internet came from people sitting at terminals inputting that data. The internet of things relies on passive data input. So you have an object, for example, a oh, I don't know, a smart thermostat or something like that, that passively collects information from the environment through sensors, over Wi-Fi. Uh, this is essentially the Internet of Things. So there we're talking about, what, what's the company, uh, Nest? You have your thermostat that may be communicating with your smartphone, that may be communicating with your car, and they all interact without going over the so-called World Wide Web. Yeah, um, so in many cases it does. The, the traffic does go over uh, what we call the, the best efforts internet. Um, and you may access information about many of these devices through the World Wide Web. Uh, the concept here is that the devices, as you mentioned, are speaking uh, in some cases with one another and don't rely on humans to collect the information. Maybe we, we, we should back up for a second because we want to make sure people understand exactly what we're talking about. I think we have one example of, you know, the smart thermostat, the Nest, right? That's the Internet of Things, and that's a good example of how it would impact folks at home, right? At a convenience at home, you can picture, soon we'll have smart refrigerators, we'll have smart light bulbs uh, that will tell you when they need to be replaced and whatnot. But I think uh, it's important for us to, you know, say, understand it's, it's bigger than that, right? It's, um, it, it has industrial applications, right? Uh, the Internet of Things will make factories run more smoothly. It'll uh, help with supply chain management. Uh, it'll, uh, it has a role in cities, right? Smart cities, smart trains, uh, traffic management. And uh, so I think it's important to understand these realms. Healthcare, it's going to have huge implications for healthcare. There are 10 billion devices already connected to the Internet of Things, and within 10 years, people estimate it'll be hundreds of billions. And these are things like pacemakers that could be life life-saving or life-threatening if they it, it fail could to be. work? It could be, uh, you know, it could be an insulin pump, right, controlled uh, by the Internet of Things. It could be cars, right? Uh, you hear about uh, driverless cars that happens by virtue of the Internet of Things. Uh, the Internet uh, of Things has the promise of telling you when your car needs maintenance or when a part on a big piece of machinery needs maintenance. It has uh, great implications in the agricultural sector. Uh, smart tractors will tell you uh, where to put seeds, which seeds are better. Uh, where you need to water on your farm, and things like that. Uh, so part of this is maybe a changing paradigm, moving from just a few items that are computerized or so-called smart into a, a basically ubiquitous uh, computers in our household items, in our industrial items, in our medical equipment. 
Right, I, I think that's right. I think that uh, right now, uh, Jameson was talking about humans inputting data and now machines inputting data, and we think about those separately. I think increasingly over the next 10 years, uh, they'll become blended. We'll have what some, have folk, uh, some folks have called, including John Chambers of Cisco, the Internet of Everything. Part of what we're discussing here today yeah. is, is not necessarily coming from a, we're moving towards this new technology, how scary is it? But we're moving toward this new te technology. How can we think about it in a smart way, foresee some of the dangers and risks, and see how laws or regulations may be able to avoid them? Privacy, security, spectrum is another big issue. And then uh, net neutrality is something that plays into it as well. And I think, um, let me pass it off to Jameson to set, sort of set the table about the way the U.S. approaches, and maybe we talk, start with privacy. Yeah, sure. Unlike in, uh, unlike in some countries, some areas of the world, the U.S. does not have an omnibus privacy law. Uh, instead, it has very specific, uh, sector-specific or data-type-specific laws. So you have specific laws about children's data. You have specific laws about healthcare data or financial or, or credit data, uh, but there's no single privacy, large privacy act uh, dealing with, with consumer information. And there hasn't been a constitutional right to our data privacy recognized by the courts yet. That's correct. Uh, yeah, they have, the Supreme Court has been dancing around it, uh, and uh, uh, there are some rights, the right to be let alone, right, is a privacy right, but we don't have a, uh, a right to privacy that's uh, plainly written as the Europeans do. Um, and so, in order to uh, fill in the gaps, uh, two federal agencies in particular uh, have had a large role uh, in the privacy sphere. Those are the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. Now, historically, the FTC has been the main cop on the beat for privacy issues. It uses its authority from something called Section 5 of the FTC Act uh, that prohibits uh, unfair and deceptive trade practices. Um, this is like saying this, this product will, will make you live longer when in fact it, it's just sugar and some food dye. Yeah, and you know, I think the main place where you see it come up, at least recently, uh, is within privacy policies. So under some state laws, California, for example, uh, if you have a website and you're dealing with people in the state of California, uh, you're obligated to have a public-facing privacy policy. In that privacy policy, you make certain promises to your consumers about how you handle their data. Uh, and then, if it turns out uh, that you violated one of those promises, the FTC can use its Section 5 authority to say that that was a deceptive trade practice. Maybe we can have a couple of examples. Is this where perhaps your bank may collect, be collecting certain information and you don't want them selling it off to the highest bidder? Yes, although depending on the, the bank is a, a, a very specific example, and, and there are sector-specific laws, as I mentioned, um, that might come up under something called the GLBA, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, that deals specifically with financial institutions. Um, yeah, let me interject there. You, Joel, you raise a uh, good issue because you say, you know, we talk about privacy. Why, do, why are we concerned about privacy? Because it's uh, consumers uh, expect certain information about themselves to be kept private. They're willing to share a lot, but there's certain information that they uh, want to be kept private or they want to know what companies will do with it. 
in your example, if a bank is going to sell somebody's financial information, uh, one would think the consumer should know about it and give the bank permission to do so. Uh, that financial information is uh, what we would call highly sensitive information. There are a couple buckets that are highly sensitive. Geolocation would be included, healthcare data, financial data, geolocation, and uh, generally children, children's information. Information about children is considered uh, protected as well in a different realm. And so uh, with the Internet of Things, it's interesting because um, you have to think, well, what would be so important that I couldn't share? Who really cares if um, they know that I'm doing my wash automatically every 2 o'clock in the morning because I want to get the cheaper energy rates, right? And so it's interesting that you think about you know, what's underneath it. What are the, what are the information flows that are uh, protected? So there's two questions, I guess, that are raised there. First, all these different baskets of information that you mentioned, one could imagine that type of information being collected, perhaps passively. Let's use the example of a light bulb. If the light bulb is collecting information when it's on and when it's off, and that light bulb is placed in a child's room, then are we dealing with information that may be related to children? I think that that's um, that would be more of a stretch in my mind because the light bulb is not going to tell you anything about the children. But perhaps a better example is about a video camera, right? We have uh, monitors, uh, baby monitors, right? And when my children were young, they were um, voice monitors. But today, most of them are video monitors. Imagine that's connected to the internet, and imagine that is exposed. That is, uh, raises another issue beyond privacy, that raises an issue about public safety, right? Which is another one of the issues, the big issues around the, open, uh, around the internet of things, uh, public safety, I would add, as another one. You use the example of the child monitor. Sure. Is there an expectation that that video is just being streamed and not stored, and if so, if there's a storage, is that one of the privacy concerns that we're talking about? I think the expectation has to be rooted in something. I don't think it's an expectation that just evolves out of nothing. The expectation would have to be evolve out of the device manufacturer's disclosures to you. And you can think, well, why would that device manufacturer or the purveyor of that service store that information? Uh, you would say maybe it should, uh, it should disappear. It shouldn't be stored at all. But uh, there could be a use case for storing it, right? Say something happened to the child overnight, you videoed it, and you wanted to know what happened, why did the child, or why is my child not getting a good night's sleep? The video could help you analyze that, right? So I think it goes down to what the disclosures are. It may be that you have controls where it's not recorded, or you can personally control that it is recorded. And it may be going to a, uh, a platform in the manufacturers or the uh, uh, consumer product company's um, cloud, or it could be going to your own computer, right, through your own Wi-Fi, and you may be doing that yourself by diverting that feed. A whole bunch of options, but I think it goes down to disclosures, Joel. Maybe we can talk a little bit about a few other examples where privacy issues may be triggered through this Internet of Things. You know, one of the things um, that comes up a lot is this idea of uh, uh, connected devices for health, wearable technology. Um, like so a, you have like a Fitbit or a yeah, Jawbone, like, yeah, like a Fitbit or Jawbone or or an Apple Watch. Um, so these devices, in many cases, have sensors on them. Where they get your heart rate. They collect how many steps you're taking um, and other potentially sensitive information. It um, might show that you have a chronic disease or some type of risk for a chronic disease. Right. And the question is, would your employer like to know that information? 
would the insurance company like to know that information? Um, these are sorts of risks that people are starting to think about. Would advertisers like to know that information? Well, advertisements, advertisers very well may like to know that information. So when you look at the privacy policy, um, and very few people do, I think the, probably those who read privacy policies the most are, are the lawyers who are writing them. Um, uh, which is unfortunate, and, and I think that there are steps at, at, the, um, at the federal level to try to change that, have more transparency and have simpler disclosures. Um, but, you know, if you look at the privacy policy, there's a question. How are they using that data? Are they selling it to third-party advertisers? How far down in the privacy policy is it written? And what rights do you have um, if the company, um, you know, violates your, your privacy rights, you know? A lot of the data that's going to be generated by Internet of Things devices uh, will get uh, transported into your smartphone, right? It can get transported into your smartphone or into your PC, but into that environment that you run where you manage your life, right? And uh, by virtue of that, uh, you can expose that data to other takers, if you will. Uh, you would have an app, right? So you download an app onto your smartphone and you get a, a, um, a message, a push notification saying this app would like to... Uh, access to your X, right? The most frequent one they want access to is your contacts, right? You know, why on earth contacts did I and Facebook, right? Why on earth did I download a mapping app? But they want they want all my contacts, right? Not just the place I'm going, but they want my contacts. And so there is a there's a hunger for data. And so, but that is one way where these things could get exposed, right? How how does that health data that comes off the Fitbit, or um, maybe your pacemaker, or um, your insulin pump, how does that get exposed to others? And there are all sorts of ways where it could get exposed. And that's, I think, part of what uh, people need to understand as they embrace um, uh, wearables, for example, healthcare wearables, that they need to understand uh, the connectedness uh, doesn't come with a whole different set of firewalls. You have to be vigilant uh, to make sure that you avail yourselves of firewalls that are available uh, if you want that stuff kept private. I think a car is another example of, uh, you know, the Internet of Things uh, being uh, increasingly pervasive in our lives. Uh, most cars today are connected in some way. Most new cars are connected in some way. I think uh, Chevy uh, advertises the Suburban as the probably the largest hotspot, right? It's the largest rolling hotspot. There it's 4G equipped. Because it brings uh, Wi-Fi. It's already connected, and you have things like OnStar, right? You have uh, most of the manufacturers now have some sort of uh, connection to the internet to facilitate uh, navigation. It may also have uh, connected devices to facilitate safety features of the cars. Uh, crash avoidance, right? Our, our lane departure avoidance, things like that. But your car is connected. So there is a digital uh, memory, if you will, of where your car went, right? And you can imagine that um, certain people wouldn't want everyone to know where their car went. And uh, we've seen this in terms of that. Uh, I think most people wouldn't want the world to know where their car has been. I think that's right. I think most people wouldn't want to know, but that that is one of the privacy concerns about having everything tracked, right? You can, because your car is connected, you can know, for example, uh, connected cars. And it's smart tags um, are easy passes, right? That's a form of Internet of Things. It's a very early form of it, but uh, you can do things with that and you can actually trace when you go between the monitors and you could actually tell if someone's been speeding, right? Uh, so there are things that um, are issues that are raised because of the connected nature of um, uh, automobiles, for example, as a good example of the Internet of Things becoming increasingly pervasive and raising privacy issues that hadn't been there before. Why don't we talk about the current regulations 
in place and how they're addressing this Internet of Things? Right now, there aren't Internet of Things specific regulations. And uh, what I mean is, you know, there's no uh, IoT commission at the federal level or at the state level. Um, there have been no specific rules uh, promulgated that are designed specifically for the IoT. Um, and there are no federal laws at this point that were designed, again, specifically for the IoT, at least that have been passed. A few of them have been introduced uh, specifically on the connected car issue um, that John had mentioned. But what we do have are regulations that have existed for some time, like Section 5 of the FTC Act that I mentioned before, uh, and then also uh, existing and newly passed uh, FCC, uh, Federal Communications Commission regulations, uh, that have applicability to the Internet of Things. So do these create some type of floor? So should we believe that we're protected at some base level on our privacy issues? Jump in here. I, I would say yes, right? And the Federal Trade Commission Act has Section 5, which bars uh, unfair and deceptive trade practices. Uh, it's unfair if you don't care for um, the security of the information whatsoever, right? You do nothing. That's, I think at this point, that's unfair. It's deceptive if you say you're going to do something and you don't do it, or you do something else. And that's, that's sort of uh, Section 5 uh, in really simple terms. The Federal Communications Co Commission has a similar uh, construct in what's called Section 201, not to be too boring about uh, all these sections, but uh, it, uh, it bars unjust and unreasonable practices. And so it would be unjust not to protect privacy of uh, certain information that the FCC was thought was in its realm. It'd be unreasonable to say you were doing something uh, with the information and then do something else. I, I think so there are some baseline uh, statutes, very broad statutory protections that both those agencies have that they can use uh, to um, affect this space and uh, in terms of both privacy and security. My question, and the question of people who are learning about the Internet of Things, is do we have enough protections as consumers, as the technology advances, and as these computers are being put inside more and more things? I would say, and start with the disclosure. We represent corporations, so most corporations would say, we don't need more laws, we don't need more regulations. And uh, what we do have is, and I think we've, we've talked about it already, Jameson set forth this framework. We have very broad statutes in place uh, at the Federal Trade Commission and at the Federal Communications Commission. And those are important. Federal Trade Commission think about protecting consumers, uh, with the exception of uh, those consumers who are touched by what's called a common carrier. Uh, it's a phone company, but now it's also the internet access service provider. That's regulated by the Federal Communications Commission. The, so that's why those two agencies are prominent in this discussion about privacy. Both have very broad-based statutory protections that say, don't do bad things, essentially, is a way to interpret it. And underneath that, you have enforcement that uh, puts a finer point on those broad protections, what's acceptable, what's not. Uh, the Federal Communications Commission has certain regulations. The Federal Trade Commission has more limited set of regulations, but they have regulations as well. So it's a combination of regulations and case law that sort of evolve underneath the broad frameworks of the statute that I think I would submit are enough to address the Internet of Things. And probably you don't want to get uh, too much more detailed because uh, you will have the debate then about whether regulators can keep up with technology, anticipate it, and uh, what people will do with it, what companies will do with it. And you also have, of course, the debate whether too much law and too much regulation will inhibit investment and innovation.
we talked a little bit about the agreement between the company and the consumer, which is the privacy policy or the terms of use policy. At what level can a terms of use policy, a privacy policy, become so dense that the consumers, in, in actuality, uh, perhaps giving up more than they, they understood? Many would say that terms of use and, and privacy policies are already, already too long. There's already too much legalese within them. I don't know anyone who reads their iTunes updates. I mean, they, I no. could, in my iTunes update, it could have said I'm leaving everything to Apple Corp, and I've, I've signed it 27 times. I think that people read one word in that, and, and it's accept. And then they hit the button, and then, and then they move on. They want to use their service. They want to use their product. Now, I think that there's a push. There's a concerted push by those in the industry and by government to make privacy policies and terms of use more accessible to users. Uh, now, that can be through just-in-time disclosures. Um, before you click ahead, here are four bullet points that you need to know about. Or we've updated our privacy policy and terms of use. Here are the four bullet points uh, that you should pay attention to uh, before you click accept. So I think there really is a push to make these things a little more consumer friendly. And I think that in time, um, you'll see from, from regulators um, more, uh, more concern about privacy policies that don't have those sorts of uh, disclosures up front. Right, and you increasingly see on your mobile phone, for example, push notifications, right? Reminders, uh, especially with regard to sensitive information, that something's going on, an application wants to use your location. Uh, and that is an example of an enhanced prior privacy disclosure or a layered approach to it. It's not but is that a best practice that a company has adopted rather than some type of legal obligation? I think it's a best practice at this point, but keep in mind the more best practices become standardized and the norm, uh, the more likely it will be the case where if you don't do something like that, then it will eventually become uh, something that runs afoul of these very broad strokes of uh, preventing uh, unfair practices, trade practices under the FTC's rubric or unreasonable. Uh, practices under the Federal Communications Commission's rubric. At some point, things will be unacceptable. Uh, California is the only state that actually requires a privacy policy. Uh, I wouldn't recommend um, not having one uh, at this point, even though there's no specific law that says um, you need to have a privacy policy in any other state. Um, I wouldn't recommend doing business in any other state if you're collecting consumer information without one. For our regular listeners, you are familiar, a quick break for our code for the MCLE Continuing Education listeners. The code for this interview is 072516. Again, that's 072516. And now back to the interview. John, let me give you an example. Let's say I use a, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch and I'm jogging regularly. It turns out there may be something wrong with my heart rate, perhaps it's too high or too low. All of a sudden I'm being contacted by a pharmaceutical company suggesting blood pressure medicine. Now, currently, if I agreed in some giant long template agreement that they're, that they're at liberty to share my information, my only recourse now is stop using that device. Is that right? 
That is probably your best recourse is to stop using that device. It may not be your only recourse. Uh, you have to go ba trace back through what you agreed to. But I, I think the example you used, Joel, is one that would be surprising to me. Uh, I think that um, uh, it is accepted that healthcare information is highly sensitive. So most companies who uh, deal in this space are sensitized that it is so. Uh, so they're going to try, and I would expect most of them will try and not surprise you with what they do with the information and not be creepy like that. Uh, you know, if a major pharmaceutical who is um, got uh, a big business in um, heart-related um, products uh, surprises you and says, oh, guess what, we have a contact with Fitbit and we actually know you had a heart attack last week while you were running. You may not know, but we know and we can help you out. That's creepy. Um, I, I, you generally are not going to see um, big corporations do that because uh, the, um, the headlines will be uh, enormous, right? And the brand damage and the financial damage that could happen uh, could be enormous as well. And I think there's a point to be made here. Uh, we defend corporations uh, and um, in all sorts of uh, uh, contexts and consumer protection uh, um, realm. You don't need a specific statute or specific claim necessarily to go back and get some retribution. We have a, a very creative class action bar in this country, and it seems as though every time there's a headline related to privacy, someone is going to go to court. The companies, um, regardless of whether they eventually will win or settle, uh, going to court costs money. It costs money in terms of paying lawyers. It costs money in terms of getting people uh, off their day job and defending that instead of moving the business forward. And it can have tremendous brand damage, uh, as we've seen from some of the more high-profile uh, breach cases uh, where consumers uh, felt as though their, pri their private information got out in places it shouldn't have gotten to. So one of our biggest lines of defense as a consumer, or perhaps something that should make us rest a little bit easier, is the common sense of the companies that are selling it, as well as what you might describe or you might have just described as some type of creepiness test where companies don't want to cross a certain line to avoid some type of adverse reaction. Right. I, I think that is a, a general uh, standard, don't be creepy, uh, is widely accepted. But also there's self-regulation. In many aspects of um, uh, this realm, there is self-regulation. Online advertisers, for example, have a self-regulatory paradigm uh, that gets backed up with enforcement. Uh, it is typically, it's industry-based, uh, but if you, once again, you, you say you're going to participate in a self-regulatory scheme and uh, put the trust mark on your website, for example, or uh, say that you comply with some code of conduct and you don't do it, at that point, the industry self-regulation will work to refer the companies that don't do that to the in proper enforcement agency, quite often the Federal Trade Commission. Apart from the privacy issue, when you're collecting this massive amount of data, from, as you said, perhaps billions and billions of devices, you're creating huge deposits of that data, and that raises security issues. What type of security practices are currently in place, and what will be needed as the system expands? There are many uh, security practices that companies have in place. I think that standard uh, encryption in storage uh, is one uh, standard practice. You know, I think that when you think about security, you have to think think broadly. You know, there are uh, there's physical security. That's having a, a lock on the door or a lock on the cage where the server is. Um, there's administrative uh, security. So administrative security uh, might be ensuring that only people who have a need to access uh, the data have access to the data. And that um, if people need to have access to the data for one particular purpose, that they can only use it for that 
particular purpose. So that's an administrative limitation. Um, These type of restrictions certainly apply to things like healthcare information, but do they apply to the more general information that we're going to be collecting, perhaps from light bulbs or or cars? Well, so I think that you know there are. There are two things to think about here. The first is when you're dealing with sensitive information, sometimes the law requires it. They might have specific uh, rules and regulations that apply to, say, sensitive healthcare information or financial information, credit information, and other, other sorts of information like that. But then there's just good business practice. You know, one of the things that John mentioned earlier was brand damage. And if I'm a car company and I have a connected car and there is some sort of hack or a vulnerability or something along those lines, even though there may not be a sector-specific law that requires security on connected cars, if I'm Jeep or Volkswagen, uh, then I'm going to want to make sure that the data is secure. Uh, because if there is a hack, if information about how often I'm, I've been speeding leaks or something along those lines, I'm going to want to buy a different car. Uh, so even though there aren't specific laws that apply to it, there are best practices like the ones that I mentioned, uh, technical, physical, and administrative uh, security practices that all companies are going to use. You talked about a few different security issues there. One may actually be accessing the person's property or the person's car in this case, or home. When you have a smart car or a smart doorknob or a smart security system, you could actually envision or imagine uh, a hack of that nature could put someone's life or health or certainly property in danger. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think the security issue, and right now you used to think you can go into somebody's house, you'd have to physically break down the door and go in, and that's one way you can uh, create a security issue, but you can enter digitally now, right? And so uh, folks uh, and companies that are in the space have to embrace security, uh, just like folks in the mobile world have already, uh, and that is you have to do uh, reasonable things. You have to go and you have to know about the threats. You can't just put your head in the bag or in the sand and not know that there are certain threats out there uh, with respect to the operating system you're using or the technology you're using. Uh, if it's out on the internet, uh, generally you're expected to know about it and to react to it. And there are many different models, right? There are certain companies who are building whole connected home environments, right? And product suites based around connected home. Uh, those companies are consolidating a bunch of different information that together could be more interesting than just the information about whether your light bulb is out or not. And, and so it's also different layers and it becomes uh, the companies, depending on what they do, become more attractive to those who pose a security threat. Uh, if, it's, if the only information to be had is whether your light bulb is out or not, uh, there aren't too many folks who are going to be too interested in cracking that nut. But if you marry it together a whole bunch of other things, then you become a more attractive target and your, and your guard has to be up. And um, human interaction, right? We have the Internet of Things, but at some point humans interact with it as well. In that case, training is a big part of security as well. And depending on what it is your people do and how they interact with the data, uh, your people have to be aware of these sorts of threats. You've reached the end of part one of this interview. Be sure to check out part two for the rest of the conversation. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. 
Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.